0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for February 15th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsey Baden, Deputy Editor. Today we're also joined by Barney Graham. Barney is a vaccine expert who spent most of the past 20 years at the Vaccine Research Center, or VRC, at the NIH. Barney grew up in Kansas, where he became something of a self-taught farmer He ended up, though, as a physician and did a couple of chief residencies and an infectious disease fellowship, while also getting a PhD at Vanderbilt and running an HIV clinical trial. In 2000, he was recruited to the NIH, where he was one of the founders of the VRC, and was instrumental in developing vaccines for respiratory syncytial virus, Zika, and COVID-19. He recently moved to the Morehouse School of Medicine, where he's professor of microbiology, biochemistry, and immunology and serves as Senior Advisor for Global Health Equity in the Office of the President. Barney, I'd like to ask you first about RSV. This week, we're publishing clinical trials of RSV vaccine, and it seems that we're finally making progress in preventing this illness. What drew you to study the virus?
1: I had an opportunity during medical school to take a few months of research, and I got to do some virology projects. I studied what was thought to be a transforming agent for a cell line to make it neoplastic. And that colored some of my thinking about how I would pursue my medical career. But I was really fully engaged in being a physician and a clinician and wasn't really thinking about science until my chief residency at General Hospital when I saw one of the first patients with HIV in Tennessee. That was back in the late part of 1982. And that experience, along with what happened later, I think made many people in my generation decide to be viral immunologists. And so I was planning to just stop after the chief residencies and not do the fellowship or the PhD, but something about HIV drew me in. And At Vanderbilt, as in many medical centers at that time, most of the virologists were all pediatricians. So I walked over to Peter Wright's office and said, Peter, I want to be a virologist. What should I do? And he gave me a vial of RSV and a cubicle that didn't have a hood or any ventilation and said, figure out how to grow the virus and then later figure out how to make a mouse model of RSV. So my experience was just being led by the opportunity into something that I didn't really know where it was headed.
0: So you got into the field when there was a history of failed vaccines for RSV.
1: And one of the fundamental
0: insights that you brought was the idea that protein conformation was important in raising an immune response. How do you explain the science behind that idea to physicians who aren't structural biologists?
1: Yeah, that idea came about 25 years in. And the reason we were working on a mouse model is because we wanted to understand the immunology of RSV in a deeper way. And I spent the first 20 years of my career trying to understand the immunological parameters of the vaccine-enhanced disease. So my first 20 years was all spent on seeing how to make vaccines safer. Explaining this is complicated because Mostly what we know is based on animal models. We don't have a lot of human data on the underlying cause of the enhanced disease, but we think there's an antibody problem and a T cell problem. The T cell problem is something that we worked on and showed in small animals that when you immunize with an activated virus and then challenge a previously antigen naive animal in the airway, you generate a lot of TH2 cytokines. You generate a lot of IL4 and mucus and IL13 and bronchoconstriction and all that tends to inhibit the cytolytic pathways. And so we think there is a T cell problem if you deliver antigens in the wrong sequence. And this is how you make a model of asthma in mice. You put ovalbumin into the peritoneal cavity and then spray ovalbumin in the lung and you get a lot of eosinophilia. And TH2 responses. And so it made sense because RSV, historically, severe disease was associated with severe family history of atopy. And, and in small airways that are complicated by bronchoconstriction and mucus, it just adds to the obstruction that is the basis for most severe RSV disease in those young infants. The antibody problem was one of the first projects I worked on in RSV, And it was spearheaded by Brian Murphy, who was in the Laboratory of Infectious Diseases at the time at NIH. And what he showed using sera from the infants in the 1965-66 trial that demonstrated the vaccine-enhanced illness was that children immunized with this whole inactivated virus vaccine made a lot of antibody that had very poor neutralizing and fusion-inhibiting type of antibody activity suggesting that you're making antibody that was not particularly good at stopping virus replication. And later, Ruth Caron and Fernando Pollock and others showed that in tissue from some of those infants from the studies in the 1960s, that you could demonstrate activated complement and immune complexes in the small airways, suggesting that the non-functional antibody in the higher viral load created immune complex deposition, complement activation, and then tissue damage from this process. And so the antibody problem eventually, we realized may be due to the conformation of the main antigenic target, which is the F glycoprotein. And explaining all of that, in a short period of time is not an easy thing. It's something people have to hear multiple times, usually before they start getting the idea. But all that work for several decades, not just by me, but by many other people, trying to understand the basis for that enhanced illness is part of what helped put guardrails around the rapid response to coronavirus, because that information was used by FDA and others to set boundaries on what kind of immune responses we thought could be safe in an antigen-naive population. And and so even that work on RSV, I think, helped uh, in the overall response to coronavirus. So Barney, you sort of
2: said that it's the right or the wrong antigen in the right or wrong sequence. Is it an antigen problem in sequencing or is it the right kind of antigen to bring out the protective immune response? And is it all about the antigen or is there also different aspects of the immune response, be it you hinted at Th1 versus Th2, which may have something to do with the adjuvant or the context in which the antigen is delivered? What's the interplay of the antigen for a protective response, but also the immunocontext of what immune response is being brought out in terms of protection versus enhanced disease?
1: Right. So, the way I view it, and like I said, the Th2 bias of a pollen activated virus vaccine priming event before airway exposure to antigen. All of that has really been done in animal models. We don't have a lot of evidence that that was a clear basis for the enhanced disease. The data on having antibody that wasn't highly functional in terms of neutralization, but we have some evidence directly linking that to those original cases of vaccine-enhanced disease. But there are other examples like tween ether, formerly activated measles vaccine that was used back in the early 60s, also created an atypical pneumonia. Four years or so after immunization, when children were exposed to measles, they got cannonball-like lesions in their lung from an atypical pneumonia and had an atypical and, and more severe disease. And that was associated also with things like delayed-type hypersensitivity reactions to the measles antigen in the children and was also associated later in animal-monkey models to be a Th2 T-cell event, but probably complicated also by the kind of inhibiting of cytolytic function that those Th2 cytokines do. And in that case, it took four years for the antibody to wane to let the measles replicate enough for the T-cell response to become damaging because measles are just easier to neutralize overall than RSV is. And so it took some time for the T-cell response to still be present while the antibody waned for that effect to come out. Of course, all of this is happening in infants that are less than a year of age with what people call an immature immune system. But there's a lot of elements to what that immaturity means. And so when I think of a good, solid, effective immune response, if it's happening in a naive infant, it's happening because the innate immune system is good at attenuating virus growth or controlling virus growth to some extent. And then the CD8 T-cell responses are relatively quick and effectively clearing virus antigen before it builds up to a point that can cause either direct damage from cytolytic activity of the virus or immune complex disease as the antibody comes in. And that ineffective responses are things that where the innate immune response, especially type 1 interferons, allow virus titers to become high before the CD8s come and clear them. So there's a higher price to pay in immunopathology for clearing out more virus-infected cells. And if there's higher viral antigen, when the antibody shows up, you run the risk of getting some immune complex mediated disease. So overall, in thinking about how to make vaccines more effective and not just safer, I think of both antibody and a rapid CD8 T cell response, as well as a high potency, high efficiency antibody response. So each antibody has relatively higher neutralization potency. Those are the settings in which I think you have better outcomes, especially if you have that early innate response to kind of attenuate the overall burden of antigen from virus replication. I don't know if that answered your question, but... Well,
2: I have a follow-up to that one, because the kinds of sequencing that you're talking about in terms of the immune response to whatever antigen, one would imagine that they're relatively specific for a virus and its specific biology of replication. So do you have to relearn the lesson over and over again with each new infection?
1: Each virus has somehow figured out its own particular niche. For instance, RSVF protein is by far, I think, the most metastable of all the class one fusion proteins It also exists on viruses like HIV and influenza, Ebola. Influenza and Ebola uh, class one fusion proteins, the HA and the GP are relatively stable just in their normal state. Hemagglutin doesn't really rearrange and change shape that much until the pH lowers. And so RSVF protein is so metastable. The virus has learned to live with this unstable protein that even on the virus surface flips into the post-fusion conformation, And of course, the post-fusion form of F is non-functional. If all the F on the surface of the virus flips to the post-fusion, the virus wouldn't be able to enter a cell. We actually think that's part of what happened in the vaccine-enhanced disease, because once we had the reagents and the knowledge of how this was working, we could show using dot blots and other things that if you baked the virus at 37 degrees for over 24 hours, you could prove that F was still on the surface with antibodies that bound both forms of the F protein, but that antibodies that only exclusively bound the prefusion surfaces, they diminished at the same rate at which the virus replication was killed. And so we think virus was killed by flipping F into the post-fusion and that the all inactivated virus vaccine back in the 60s was really a post-fusion F antigen. And so that's part of the way we're thinking about why having the very neutralization-sensitive vulnerable surfaces preserved with the pre-fusion F conformation gives you an overall increase in neutralizing activity per antibody. And we isolated hundreds of antibodies from babies and adults that were RSV-specific, and uh, showed that most of the high potency neutralizing antibodies were directed against the two major sites that were pre-fusion surface exclusive. And if you look at pre-fusion versus the dual binding antibodies that bind both pre and post-fusion, the pre-fusion exclusive antibodies are 10 to 100 times more potent overall than the others that bind both surfaces. And so It's a nice story because it's a good example of how basic research investment gives you solutions to things that you didn't really expect. We were just trying to understand what the protein looked like and how it worked and realized that there's some new epitopes here that are highly neutralization sensitive that hadn't been discovered before.
2: So Barney, since not all of our listeners are molecular biologists, is this a fair characterization if we use the umbrella analogy? in that the RSV virus has multiple umbrellas on its surface, the F protein, in a closed conformation. Until it finds a susceptible cell, the umbrella opens, it enters, the cell replicates. So the immunity to the open umbrella may not be as helpful as the immunity to the closed umbrella, which is the circulating virus looking for a target cell. And so it may look very different immunologically And that part of what you were describing is the science to understand the closed umbrella, the pre-fusion state, so that the immunity is ready to attack it before it establishes further replication. Is that a fair way of describing it, or am I mischaracterizing
1: the biology? The umbrella uh, made me pause because, you know, the umbrella is folding down, and when this thing unfolds, it folds up, so. It's an umbrella in the wind it gets inverted correct i know this is a this is a podcast it it starts like this okay that's what it looks like when it starts and it ends up like this which is obviously the post fusion here is a much taller molecule so what happens is the top half of this unravels and then it folds back around and so these red and orange epitopes are lost and uh we think of it more like a transformer. You know, it, it's a functional car when it's in this state, and then it can rearrange into a giant robot when it's over here. And, and if you don't attack the car, if you try to attack the robot instead of the car, you're attacking the non-functional protein instead of the functional protein. It actually really is helpful to have videos because this process of rearrangement of these proteins is so profound that most people don't understand what a engine it is. It's like a little motor. It's like a mechanical device. It's hard to imagine a biological thing being so mechanical, but it really has a massive rearrangement that's hard to envision without a, a video.
2: So maybe we're talking about a jack-in-the-box.
1: Okay. Yes, because the fusion protein is on a spring mechanism. That's actually why the coronavirus stabilization worked is because the proline insertions at the top of the central helix prevented these alpha helices from stacking on each other. It basically, this is a spring-loaded mechanism. Those prolines prevented the alpha helical coils from assembling. So I think a jack-in-the-box is better.
0: So speaking of coronaviruses, when COVID-19 first appeared in China, your lab was already studying coronaviruses. Why had you chosen to work in this area? And do you think that your experience in the lab prepared you for the magnitude of the problem that we've seen?
1: Well, there is a series of fortuitous circumstances. You know, Jason McClellan, who was in Peter Kwong's lab at the time as a fellow, he and I worked on this RSV issue for about four or five years. But then at the end of 2013, he went to a new faculty position at Dartmouth. So we were trying to strategize, you know, how does Jason get a start, both with some contract work at solving structures, but also at developing a program that didn't have to compete with the big field of HIV. And we wanted to extend the finding of RSV to other envelope viruses. And so there were no structures for spike in the coronavirus literature. And so we said, let's work on coronavirus. And there's not a lot of competition Here And there's no structures, so there's a big opportunity to make an impact. And it didn't hurt that the MERS coronavirus outbreak in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere was happening right at the time when we were getting to the end of solving this F-protein structure for RSV. So we've now had two coronavirus events within 10 years. Uh, Jason was leaving. We needed a, something that we could work on together, and we chose coronavirus. And we chose the MERS and SARS coronavirus initially, the first SARS-1. And uh, those spike proteins were inherently so unstable that we never could get a structure, either a crystal structure or even after engaging Andrew Ward, a cryo em structure. And it wasn't until one of our postdocs who implored me to have his time to go to the Hajj in Saudi Arabia at the end of 2013. And he came back with his pregnant wife sick. This story has been told in a newspaper before, so I can say something about it. They came back sick, and we were worried that maybe he'd gotten MERS because that was the reason we didn't necessarily want him to go that year. And he came back, and we did PCR, and it was coronavirus. But it turned out to be HKU1, which is one of our endemic coronaviruses. It wasn't MERS. And he said, why haven't we been working on HKU1 all the time? Because we don't need the containment space, and a lot of things might just be easier. And it turned out that as soon as we made the spike protein for HKU1, it was so inherently stable that Andrew Ward and Jason were able to almost immediately get the spike structure. And so now we have a coronavirus spike structure, and over time learned how to do the stabilization. And those same prolines that stabilized HKU1 in the same exact position at the top of the central helix also stabilized MERS and SARS 1 and about a dozen other coronavirus spikes. And so we had a generalizable phenomenon. We had a generalizable approach to stabilizing a beta coronavirus spike protein. And all of this happened for some somewhat serendipitous reasons along the way. And so, you know, we had a coronavirus program at the VRC with Jason, but also with Mark Dennison at Vanderbilt and Ralph Berrick at UNC and Andrew out at Scripps and this academic collaboration, because there wasn't a lot known about coronavirus structure and antibodies and antigenic sites or any of that at the time. It was just a very open field to work in, and it was good for Jason and good for the other young people.
2: So, Barney, take us back to January of 2020, when there was the emergence of this pneumonia in the wet markets, and the virus was isolated. The sequence was posted in early January. How do you react to that initial virology and the initial sequence in the context of this work that had been done? And how did that catalyze what was done next?
1: Well, I think I got my first email uh, around 5.30 on New Year's Eve, the 31st of December in 2019. And I forwarded that to Jason and Kizmikia and said, we better get ready for 2020 because, you know, it looks like there may be work to do. And so you know, you see these things come up, and sometimes they don't really materialize. But this one sounded like it was at least serious at the time. And we'd heard rumors from other people, friends in China, who said it's a lot worse than it sounds like on the news. So we were concerned. I didn't know at the time whether it would be a coronavirus or maybe a paramyxovirus or something like that. But apparently, you know, if it wasn't readily diagnosed, it was probably not influenza. and so we were ready and just in 2019 we had just published our phase 1 data on the RSV prefusion F and showing that it really did change everything for immunization it boosted neutralizing activity you know many many fold higher than the old post fusion vaccine products had done and so we had that and we'd also been in a 3 year collaboration with Moderna after finding that their mRNA was better than our DNA for Zika that year, because we did all those animal studies for the other manufacturers, um, we made a deal with Moderna. We would do a pandemic preparedness demonstration project, and NEPA would be the prototype for paramyxoviruses, and MERS would be the prototype for corona, and At that time in 2019, we had already designed the NEPA antigens and the MERS antigens, and had already shown that both protein and mRNA could protect against lethal challenge. So we were ready to go, and we had planned already and had done facility inspections and everything, and we're planning to do a NEPA RNA clinical trial in the first quarter of 2020. So all of those agreements with NIAID and Dr. Fauci and Moderna, all of that was already in place to do a phase one clinical trial. And then on the 6th of January, we found out that it probably was a beta coronavirus. And at that time, Stefan Bonsell and I agreed that we would switch the demonstration project to coronavirus instead of NEPA. We Either way, we were going to do a demonstration project to show how fast you could go if you had an event in a paramyxovirus or coronavirus. And so on the 10th, when we got the sequences and ordered the reagents and made the plans, we sent the sequence to Moderna, our recommended sequence, because we'd had enough experience then to think that we could design something that could work without any additional experimentation. And they agreed to get us back the RNA as quickly as possible. And I think within 24 days, they had RNA in our hands and we immunized mice. And by 42 days in, we had immunogenicity data from the mice already. And so that preceded the phase one clinical trial that you all helped with. The NIAID clinical trials groups uh, participated in groups out of the HVTN participated in that initial phase one trial. And by then, uh, that was March 16th, I think, and the uh, WHO had just declared it a public health emergency of international concern at the end of January, I think, after we had infections in the U.S., but they didn't declare it a pandemic until, I think, the 8th of March. So the pandemic had just been declared, and then we got the phase one trial started, and you know the story from there because uh, you all were involved. I mean, there was thousands of investigators and hundreds of thousands of volunteers that participated then in, in the evaluation.
2: But it sounds like from the sequence, given the prior work that you just discussed, you were able to pivot what to manufacture because the structural biology suggested that the sequence would behave a certain way and form a, uh, an appropriate immunogen or vaccine
1: right so all we had to do was take the spike sequence out of the full genome and then at amino acid positions 986 and 987 is where the prolines would go and so just making a few modifications to put the prolines there Then we had some confidence and hope that that would turn out to be a good antigen, and and it was. And even after additional experimentation to look at other things, at least in the first round of evaluation, that two-proline substitution turned out to be as good or better than most of the other antigens that were ever tested.
0: At this point in the COVID-19 epidemic, we have vaccines that are pretty effective at preventing serious illness and death but they're much less effective at preventing infection and mild to moderate illness. So, Barney, do you see other innovations out there that could increase the breadth of the immune response, offer more protection against new variants, possibly even decrease transmission of the disease?
1: This is something I wish we had been a lot more vocal and clear about early in the coronavirus pandemic, because we've been infected with respiratory viruses from the beginning of time, probably. But throughout all of our lives, we're infected with influenza and RSV and adenoviruses, etc. And none of them that I know of completely protect you from a subsequent infection. The whole system is designed to create immunity that focuses on protecting the lung. The mucosal infection creates tissue-resident CD8 T-cells, and the virus antigen stimulates antibody responses. And those antibody responses, some are mucosal, but most of it is a systemic response. And those antibodies can protect the lung and lower airway where the gradient from serum into the tissue is much less. The gradient of a serum antibody into the nasal tissue is very high and it's hard to get enough antibody in there from the serum in order to really totally prevent an infection. And even with mucosal immunity, I think it's unlikely to totally prevent infection. So I think that this vaccine was never designed or really expected to prevent infection. And even a new mucosal vaccines, there's a balance at which you might have to give up some systemic protection if you want more mucosal protection. so I think the way this system is designed over time is that you protect the lower airway, and then you fill in the gaps of immunity by repeated low-grade infections of the upper airway. And that's just really how biology works. If we completely prevented infection from these respiratory diseases, I'm not sure what would happen if we, for instance, this may be part of the whole dialogue you might want to cut out of the podcast. but, (laughs) But for instance, so when coronavirus came in 2020 and we isolated our families and our children, the seasonal RSV outbreak that always happens in May or June in South Africa and in December, January in the Northern Hemisphere got completely turned on its head. And so RSV came up in November in South Africa. Nobody had ever seen that happen before. And then we skipped a whole season of RSV in this country. And then RSV came up in May and June of 2021, which was a strange time. It was because probably coronavirus was waning, and finally there was enough pressure to have some outbreak then. But If we completely prevented these respiratory infections for, let's say, for three or four or five years and then had a flood of all of them coming back, is that really the best way to maintain health and immunity and overall lung health? Or is it better to have periodic low-grade upper respiratory infections to fill in the gaps of immunity as we protect the lung? So, you know, I think those are some big questions that still really need to be answered. And so I think protecting the lower airway is the most important goal in all of this, for vaccines at least. And then natural immunity from infection can fill in the gaps. That's the way I think about it. I think we can leave that, actually.
2: I think that's an interesting discussion.
1: Okay. It's it would be controversial because there's so many programs focused right now on both pan-coronavirus or mucosal vaccines, new generation vaccines that would solve all of our problems. But I'm pretty sure that no vaccine that we make at this point is going to make coronavirus go away. And I think we've seen the patterns now. It's I think we finally have hit it where it's going to become an endemic seasonal virus, but it will be back next winter and there will be some people who are frail elderly and who are immunocompromised or who have other risk factors for severe disease that even with vaccination may still get infected and may still get some severe disease. And so I don't know that we're going to be able to entirely eliminate severe disease from this new endemic seasonal coronavirus, but I think as the virus adapts to us, and we adapt to it through our immunity, the virus is adapting to us by choosing to grow better in the upper airway than the lower airway. It's cold adapting. It grows to much higher titer now in nasal tissue. It grows less well in the lung. So in some ways, it's becoming less virulent, except for those people who are at high risk. And I think that's the balance that we'll eventually get to with, we'll have better immunity. The virus will tend to grow better in the upper airway to evade our systemic antibody and also to be more readily transmitted to the next person. And we'll get into a balance that's not ideal or optimal because that's what we do with influenza every year. And we still lose tens of thousands of people to influenza every year. And we live with that. And so That's what's eventually going to happen. Whether we can do better than that with vaccines and other antivirals and things, uh, I'm not sure.
0: So the technology behind vaccines, as you've been describing, has changed at a whirlwind pace. What other infections do you think are now amenable to prevention by new approaches?
1: This has been a spectacular decade. I count back to around 2008, when so many new technologies became available to apply to vaccine development and vaccine design. And so, um, you know, the big message is that young people who have 30 years ahead of them are going to get to see some very exciting things, I think, and and have a lot of opportunity to do a lot with these new technologies. But Even in the near term, I think there could more easily be solutions for some viral diseases. There's been a lot of progress on CMV recently. I think there are virus families, as we think about all the different families that could create pandemic threats, There are some virus families that are not necessarily likely to break out in high-income countries, but which I think there are ways now that could pretty readily create vaccine solutions for these problems that exist regionally in in mostly low- and middle-income countries. So, for instance, the alpha virus families, I think that Things like chikungunya or western, eastern Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus or majora virus or these kind of viruses, I think we now have ways of making virus-like particles that are extremely immunogenic and would likely serve as vaccines, but the diseases are not high enough prevalence in high-income countries to really pull that trigger. So I think there are already things like that. I think we could easily make vaccines now for polyomaviruses using the same kind of technology we use for papillomavirus. But the arguments for making that a mandate or the arguments for really deploying that when it's a relatively smaller target population of need haven't really been made yet. So there are vaccines with these new technologies that could be made, but many of the diseases are not really generating a lot of investment interest. It's interesting. When
2: I was a graduate student, I worked with botulinum toxin and I received the botulinum vaccine, uh, which uh, the CDC had, which is, of course, simply just like it's a toxoid, just like tetanus toxoid. I think it's probably fairly effective, but I don't think efficacy or safety are the issue with it. It's just the disease is so rare that it's not worth deploying it, similar to the viruses that you're talking about. But it may not just be rare diseases. It's diseases where there's an economic incentive. And it sounds like the technology has emerged in a way that can allow us to address many of these diseases. But there has to be an economic incentive. And I think that's a fundamental challenge in society is which of these technologies, which of these vaccines are worthy to bring forward.
1: One of my great hopes for RNA is that Because it's a whole new way of making biologics, it's chemical synthesis, it's not bioreactors. And it can be relatively small footprint. You can arrange to do relatively small batches that maybe RNA technology could create solutions in some of these low and middle income countries to solve problems like Rift Valley fever in Kenya or loss of virus in Nigeria or the Mayora virus in Mexico, its mRNA may be just the right solution for some of those regional problems that people could see a way of getting that done. Things like chikungunya that didn't really come up into the Northern Hemisphere created a huge burden of chronic arthritic disease. And the disease itself didn't kill a lot of people, but it caused a huge burden of a rheumatoid-like arthritis that is still a big burden for the healthcare industry. And so if chikungunya vectors migrate more northward, or as we have more waves of things like that, I just think it's imperative that the world think about this in a more global way, that it's in the high-income countries' best interest to help regional investigators solve their own regional problems before they become global threats. That, I think, is something we just have to get to as a world, or we're going to have to go through some of these events again. And you can't make an economic argument now since we lost $17 trillion, or something like that.
0: In that regard, Barney, throughout your career, you've had a passion for creating a diverse environment in the lab and in science in general.
1: In your current role at Morehouse, how do you hope to further that mission? As I left NIH, I gave up my laboratory. So that that has been a hard thing for me. And so for the first time in 35 something years, I don't have a laboratory. I have a lot of students around the world where I can call and get new data, but it's not my own laboratory. And I've decided based on what I saw during this coronavirus pandemic that I wanted whatever time I have left to try to improve vaccine access and improve vaccine uptake. Access involves what we were talking about before that high-income countries need to understand that it's in their best interest to get the world vaccinated in six months instead of six years, because otherwise we're gonna continue to have waves of variants and viral evolution. Getting this shut down as early as possible, forcing the virus into its niche that comes in balance with our immune systems that is in everybody's best interest. So figuring out ways of creating the surge capacity, and I think that's best done by distributive manufacturing with some of these new technologies like RNA is in everybody's best interest. The uptake problem is a matter of education and and trying to spend more time helping people understand biology when we're not in the middle of a crisis and engaging young people to help battle some of the social media misinformation campaigns that either come out from misinformed people or come out through bots that nobody's even thinking about. And so that uptake problem where As many as 30% of people living in America where they did have access decided not to get vaccinated. You know, to me, that's just unnecessary tragedy to refuse to take the help that has been offered to you. It's like going out into the snowstorm without a coat. You know, you might survive, but it would be a lot better and wiser and prudent to put on the protective covering that is available to you. And I think just we need a lot more education and understanding of how this biology works before we get into the next big controversy. So at Morehouse, Morehouse's whole mission involves equity. Morehouse is one of the only schools I know of that has equity in its mission statement. So as I try to understand how to work on equity, both for access and uptake, Morehouse can teach me a lot. Morehouse is perfectly situated to help me do what I want to do. And hopefully I can help them do some of what they want to do. And they're also very accomplished in community education and things like that. So I think Morehouse can help me both create arguments for the access and the uptake problems.
0: Thank you, Barney, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.